Hello there. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Bueno. Today's guest, her name is Rachel Inberg, and she is a psychiatric nurse practitioner and writer from New York, and she regularly treats incest survivors, drug addicts, and victims of gang violence. She spent 10 years in school learning how to care for other people, and her writing is the result of her learning to care for herself. So Rachel and I met when she was working at a treatment center that I was running groups at, and we ended up hanging out one night, having some fun. And she is one of the funniest people. And it's interesting because this interview, you know, we just finished it. And as I listened back to it, there's so much stuff that I think is funny. And we kind of touch on the morose humor that we share kind of based on the wounds that we've had and the things that we've been through. And suicide is one of the things that we talk about in this episode. So I just wanted to share with people that some of the information that we talk about in here is difficult to hear. You know, as I'm recording this, it's not too long since Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain committed suicide. And so it's something that's kind of right at the forefront and it's just unacceptable. It makes me angry. It makes me really angry that this still happens and that people still are struggling to get the help that they need. And I'm so glad that there are people like Rachel out there talking about their experiences with suicide and being willing to share that intimately, the parts of themselves that have been hard to show others. So please do enjoy my interview with Rachel Inberg. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I am crazy. Like I said before (laughs) we started, I ain't gonna lie. But welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for our convo today. I just remember the last time we hung out. I'm pretty sure we laughed like the entire time. There was wine. There was laughing. Mm -hmm. Lots (laughs) of laughing. Yeah. Every time I spend with you, there's lots of laughter. So I'm expecting that today. So no pressure. Yeah, not at all. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) So Rachel, do you want to start off by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So I am Rachel. I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner which means I have the same roles and responsibilities as a psychiatrist. But the difference is that I did not go to med school. I was a nurse first and then went back for graduate studies and advanced clinical and passed my boards. And so I prescribe medications and do some therapy, but mostly medication management is what I really enjoy doing. And I have a private practice and also work at a clinic. So I keep busy. And what about your fun side hustles? Because I think that's an important part of who you are, too. I don't know whether you actually make money on your side hustles, but the other (laughs) things you do. So I'm a writer as well and sort of mental health advocate writer. I just did an interview with the Huffington Post, which is really exciting, talking about you know, among other things, suicide, which unfortunately is pretty, pretty apropos for what's been going on lately. And I don't really make money on it, but I don't know that anyone expects to make money off of writing or art in general. Yeah. But I imagine as singing and music does for me, it's something that's kind of just a part of you and has to happen. Yeah. I'm realizing that more and more, especially when I get to these busy periods and I don't have time to write and everything kind of bubbles Mm. up and I'm wondering like, why don't I feel okay? Like, why don't I feel like I'm meeting some crucial need and it's always Mm. producing or creating. And so that's a part or a piece of self-care that usually goes out the window. And I'm 
continuously trying to kind of make sure that I keep some creative aspect of myself in every day. When did you figure out that you liked to write? I mean, I remember being a little kid, like really young, like four or five years old and playing on my grandmother had one of the earliest Mac computers and just playing on Mm. her word processor and like writing poems. And so I think it's kind of always been with me. Mm, That's lovely. I had a Commodore 64. (laughs) I did not write poems on that. (laughs) Keep it old school. Right. And then I'd love to hear your your journey about becoming a psychiatric nurse practitioner, because I'm sure that's it's a journey. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, you know, it was about 10 years of college just based on you know undergrad and prerequisites and then going back for the master's portion. It was a whole lot of money to the tune of about 300 grand. And I think it was a major period of growth in the sense that I really had to examine what my own history meant for me when I was treating mm-hmm. other people and what it meant for me as far as you know, one of the things you need to do as a, as a mental health professional is really like leave all of your baggage and all of your mm-hmm. shit values at the door so that it doesn't interfere with the work that you do with patients and with other people. And so I think that that's been a, a huge period of growth for me and not necessarily wanting to overshare, right? Or, or right. Process, even though someone might say you don't understand and I might understand completely. It's still <laughs> right. A, it has to be this professional side. And so I think every time I meet with a patient, I'm learning a little bit more about what healthy and comfortable boundaries are for me, which is something I do personally and professionally as far as reexamining boundaries. Amen. I wonder too, because, you know, as you're saying that, I feel like with my clients, I'm probably more judicious with my own experiences than a lot of therapists, just because like, you know, working with Brene Brown and my own therapist who uses a decent amount of self-disclosure, I feel like I've been given permission to do that. But I almost feel like you are more constrained by the medical model than I am. And the medical model doesn't seem to have a lot of room for that type of empathy. I think that's definitely true. I also think that it's true that I've worked with people who were much sicker than people I currently see in my private practice. Mm -hmm. So whether that means active psychosis, whether that means that they kind of had some problems maintaining healthy boundaries. You know, I've been threatened. I've had people be aggressive towards me. People threaten me for drugs. So I think that my boundaries have evolved as I've started to see a more diverse population and see people who are less acutely ill. Mm-hmm. And I found that building a relationship, because as a therapist, you're seeing someone much more frequently than I am. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, when someone comes to me and they're, you know, they are kind of acutely symptomatic, we are meeting every month or every few weeks. And so being able to relate to them, whether it's about the weather, whether it's about the new kombucha flavor we're drinking, <laughs> like I've personally had experiences with professionals who, who wouldn't even go that far, who were yeah. so sterile and so clinical that it felt bad. Right. Like it felt like you don't see me as a person, you see me as a client or a patient. So I've started to soften my boundaries when I feel like it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. Thank God. Like I just think about the person I see for my psychiatric meds and she doesn't even know who I am. Like wow, psychiatrists just keep moving, if I feel like. So maybe I need to find a psychiatric nurse practitioner, someone will stay put. But like the first time... Like we had a discussion and she had asked me about birth control and I was like, no, but we're not having kids. And 
Yeah, you know, if we change our minds, mm-hmm. we'll adopt. And then in a subsequent session later, she's like, oh, how's the adoption going? And I was oh, like, wow. what? <laughs> and oh, she just boy. kind of blew past it. And I stopped her and I was like, I got to go back to this because either that's not my chart. And I'm concerned about that. Or right. you've written something in my chart that is wholly untrue. And I want to clarify that. And you know, she was just kind of defensive about it. She's like, oh, well, you said that, you know, maybe you'd adopt one day. And I'm like, yeah, but then that's not the question that you ask me. How's the adoption going? And I felt so unseen. And that's my childhood of origin shit. So it was like, I just want to bounce. Like, I just, I don't want to see her again, (laughs) you know? And, you know, unfortunately, that's a really common Mm -hmm. experience. And I have to try to be diplomatic when I talk about this, but I am biased because I come from a nursing model, which is not the medical model. The medical model is find mm-hmm, it, fix it, mm-hmm, you know, yep. focus on symptoms, not the person. And part of that is because you've got 15, 20 minutes to get everything integrated into your diagnosis. And that's not easy. And it's it's not a great working environment to build relationships. But also part of it is that I tend to view every person as like their own ecosystem as far yeah. as meds are one part of it. But so is lifestyle and so is behavior and relationships mm-hmm. and sleep. So I have been told that the experience patients have with me is a little different than a psychiatrist. And that doesn't mean that all psychiatrists are this way. It just right. means that I think there sometimes can be a difference in care. And so, yeah, I definitely would encourage you to find someone that you feel like is a little more attentive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when you go on your Blue Cross Blue Shield thing and you choose a psychiatrist, I wonder if they have nurse practitioner in there as an option to even look. I'll have to check it out. They do. I'm sure the thing that just to kind of a quick side note, I am not impaneled with insurance because the state of things right now is that insurance companies will not impanel nurse practitioners who do not work in an MD's office. Fuck them. Yeah, it's like a thing. It's changing slowly, but there's so much pressure from the American Medical Association to keep it like doctors only. So it's changing, but just know that. good call. Yes. Thank you. So sometimes I ask people this question of how they became who they are. And they tell me that it was something that they felt like they were just called to do and it kind of fell in their lap. And sometimes it's this, no, I was always going to be a nurse practitioner. So I'm curious how you came to that place of, I'm going to be a psychiatric nurse practitioner, God damn it. <laughs> I started off doing a bachelor's in psychology, which is ultimately useless right? as many bachelor's degrees are. And so <laughs> I worked a lot of really crappy jobs where I was the lowest on the totem pole. I didn't have a clinical degree. You know, I mean, a lot of these case management jobs are kind of sometimes putting you in risky situations. You're going to home visits. You're working with people who aren't really empowered enough to be able to or want mm-hmm. to change. And I just got tired of being treated like shit, to be honest. And yeah realized that unless I did anything, did a further degree, I wouldn't really be able to have a part to play in someone's treatment. I remember when I I was working at a women's shelter for dual diagnosis women, and they were coming to me from these, these mills where doctors would just swipe their insurance card and put them on stimulants and antidepressants and benzos and antipsychotics. I mean, we're talking nine, 12 psych meds just to get them coming back at, you know, basically getting them addicted to things. And I remember thinking like, this isn't okay. This has got to change. Mm. So I thought like, I want to be able to take a more instrumental part in people's care. And I also thought, holy shit, this field like needs 
to be straightened out. <laughs> and I knew I, you know, I was in my mid twenties and going to med school would have meant another you right. know, seven to 10 years. And I knew how competitive it was and sort of like the lifestyle you live is sort of just incredibly stressed and anxious. <laughs> you know? yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't add that on top of what I already had been going through. And so nursing seems kind of the quickest route to get where I wanted to be. Yay. Yay. I'm glad you're there. I'm glad that's where you ended up and we got to be friends. I'm glad for all of that too. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, you've kind of hinted a little bit at some of your own struggles or, well, yeah, I guess you talked about suicide at the beginning with the Huffington Post interview. I'm curious if you wouldn't mind sharing some of that with the listeners. Yeah, of course. I come from a family pretty significantly affected by mental illness and trauma and drug use. And so my experience growing up was was that of being raised by people with personality disorders who were very mm-hmm. narcissistic and manipulative and really unstable. Uh, a lot of, you know, my parents were drug addicts and not, you know, very neglectful. And so I have memories of being eight, nine years old and already kind of struggling with depression, kind of grew up and developed an eating disorder and some self-harming behaviors and really had to and have to work very hard still on my stability. Mm -hmm. Similar to what, you know, you were just talking about and a lot of my patients talk about, I certainly didn't connect with the first mental health professionals I saw. I had some bad experiences. You know, I had an experience when I was an adolescent where I was thinking of hurting myself and the therapist I'd grown close to said that she would discharge me as a patient if I continued. Mm. So it wasn't always a positive experience and I certainly Mm -hmm. wasn't a model patient. I was someone who (laughs) had medication and didn't take them or took them sometimes and then complained they didn't work. Mm -hmm. So I think that I see a lot of myself in in patients who are new to psychiatry and don't necessarily have the insight yet or the understanding of what it means to be mentally ill. Right. And so for a long time, I thought that it was a destination. I thought that stability and happiness was a Mm. destination where it's like Mm. you're there and then you you sit back and you coast, right? Yeah. You're recovered. You're you healed. You got it. Yeah. And I've recently not, well, within the past few years, been confronted with the fact that that's complete bullshit. Right. And <laughs> sort of like the rom-com idea of mental mm-hmm. health. So it is this constant journey, which is the word I, th- I feel like yeah. we've been using. But it's an everyday consideration. It's everyday mindfulness to remain healthy. You spoke to something that I feel I almost heard you say that you became a better patient once you got into the field. Mm -hmm. I feel the same way about therapy. I finally understood what we were doing there. And then I was like, oh, well, let me tell you this, because I know this is actually the important information rather than just like talking about the weather and whatever bullshit I would bring in that day. Isn't that funny? I mean, I totally think the same thing. I have a sibling. and I remember her saying something like, I just go in and I talk about shit for an hour and I leave. I don't feel any better. And it was like, Mm -hmm. that's not therapy. Therapy is not venting for an hour and then leaving and making Mm -hmm. no realizations, having no insight, just sort of dumping on someone else. And so when I have had therapists in the past who like wanted to do some CBT or some reflecting, I just would steamroll past it because I just wanted to vent. Right. So I think it's also similarly taken me some time to understand what the role of therapy is in my life and my recovery. Right. And obviously there is a place for venting. And I wonder, because I feel like some of my clients who struggle getting past that point of wanting to vent 
it's for them. Sometimes it can be a lack of acceptance of their part of the situation. And that's kind of what I also heard you say is that as you got into the field, it was almost like, oh, I have to actually do something to get better. Not just this person is going to give me these meds that are going to make everything go away. Or if I say the right thing, everything's going to go away. Absolutely. And sort of just understanding for me also that when I I was doing a lot of trauma work with patients at the last job that I had, and they really did not improve in a significant way in the time that I spent with them. And so it was also readjusting my expectations for my role in other people's lives as far as exactly what you're saying. You know, there's no one word or phrase that will like unlock their stability. Like it takes a lot of dedication and commitment on, on their part. And so... I think that in the past few years for me, just expectations for so many things have become clear. Yeah. Well, and I think too, in particular, the population that you were working with, and I imagine still probably are at the place you are now, the basic life needs not being met is just such a huge barrier to getting to a level of mental health to be able to practice, right? Like if we sitting here in our lovely apartments as white people, like, we can meditate because we have a quiet space, you know, and some of the clients might be living with 10 other family members and don't have a room to themselves. So for us to ask them to meditate is like, fuck you, lady. <laughs> kind of. I worked with a psychiatrist who was just a horror show. He was very <laughs> ill. You can say shit show here, too. But it was a it was horror. Like Ugh. it wasn't just shit. It was like terror. And we were working with the underserved Latino population in Illinois. So these were people who were, a lot of them were undocumented and worried mm-hmm. about deportation. Many of them had no income, lived in a, in a house with maybe six or seven of their family members. And so these were not wealthy people. And this particular individual was suggesting that the reason they were unhealthy was because of their diets. And so he started telling all of these poor undocumented Latino people that we were saying that they needed to stop eating red meat and and go to Whole Foods and buy almond butter and quinoa. Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Talk about being out of touch. And it felt like he had no idea of the population, but in a way it also felt shaming of like, that's not available to them. Mm -hmm. Right. And so why don't we meet them where they're at rather than suggesting these things that they have no access to. Mm -hmm. And so I totally hear you. So unfortunate. Let's shift into the word healer, talking about that word, because I have a lot of things swimming in my head that I kind of want to ask you about. But I guess first, what's your take on that word and its application to you and what you do? So I don't use the word healer in what I do. I will be upfront with you. It's a little hippy dippy, (laughs) you know, for me. I don't know that I heal people question mark (laughs) i don't i don't know that i because my role is a lot less touchy-feely than that of a therapist Mm -hmm. i feel like i stabilize people because i'm able to see physiologically like what's going on and help provide their brain with some chemicals that it really is desperate for Mm. or has too much of and needs to sort of downregulate some of Mm -hmm. that and so as much as I have a therapeutic relationship, it is more transactional, right? Because I might prescribe someone 10 milligrams of Prozac or 20 milligrams of Prozac, see them the next month and their symptoms have decreased. 
Mm-hmm. And so then I go, okay, well, I'll check in, you know, in three months and then in six months. And ultimately I'm seeing them twice a year just for, you know, medication management. So it's a lot different. And healing for me connotates sort of a bumpy road and sort of a lot of input and a lot of support and a lot of encouragement. And I feel that I do those things, but in a way that is much more like spaced out with each person. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think like you said at the beginning, just the medical aspect of it makes me feel like a little bit uncertain about calling myself a healer. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, totally. And it's interesting because when I thought of having you on the podcast, the thing that made me want you on here was your sense of humor and the way that you have applied your own healing in this profession to inform who you are, I think, in the room with people. And to me, I think music and laughter are the most important parts of healing. Agreed. I mean, laughter for sure. I think bonding and being creative and, you know, for me, I think connection is the most important part of healing and different people do that in different ways. But yeah, I mean, you know, I saw a patient today who's just really entered recovery and I've been seeing him for months and he's been really ill and not treating himself well and abusing alcohol and being honest with his wife about some of his activities. And, Mm. and today I really saw a different side of him. And I think we were able to laugh together. And I think we're both able to kind of spend some time in just really being joyous about this new recovery that he's kind of finally committed to. And he thanked me, you know, but again, like I sort of look at that in a, it's wonderful, but I think in therapy, the therapist is just using so much of themselves and so many of their own tools And not that I don't do that, but I also have medication to rely on as one of my tools. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like that doesn't count. (laughs) I I know. I know. For some reason, I want to push this word on people more than they want to take it. But like you said earlier, you didn't use this word, but basically that people's mental health and recovery is you are one piece of the puzzle. Right. And so the tools that you use to help them heal in that particular area then create healing for the whole person. And so I think of you as kind of like one of the spokes on the wheel and the center of the wheel is the person. And then all these different spokes are me, you, you know, their support system, whatever they do for fun, all of the different components of recovery. And so it's like a healing wheel. No, that I I totally get behind. You know, I think that that's the other thing sometimes when people come into psychiatry as a new diagnosed person or someone who has shied away is they come in and they're like, oh, these medications are going to make me happy. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, fuck no, no, they're not. You know, like we talked about just a couple minutes ago, like there's so many other pieces of the pie chart that make an individual And so, Mm -hmm. you know, like that patient I saw today, he was on a great medication regimen for his bipolar, but he was excessively drinking, right? which made him angry and irritable and depressed. And so it's like, there's so many other things, even outside of the work you and I do that contribute to a person's mental health. Mm -hmm. They used to say that the number one, I guess, factor for people finding gains in therapy was the relationship with the therapist. But now they've recognized like, wait, outside circumstances are actually the biggest component. 
And then the relationship with the per- <laughs> with the person, the connection is the next biggest factor. I would absolutely agree. You know, mm-hmm. if someone comes in and they're homeless and they're in domestic violence situation and they're abusing drugs, it doesn't like you could be right. their best friend. You know, it's absolutely circumstantial. Right. So what about the word wounded? So if you're not going to call yourself a healer, <laughs> but you are part of the healing wheel, you are a spoke. What do you think about wounded healer? (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about that earlier. I like it. I think it aptly describes kind of many of us. Mm -hmm. Here's why I'm hesitant. We've all encountered people who entered the mental health world for maybe the wrong reasons. Right. And people who are maybe so significantly wounded and haven't healed enough themselves that they kind of bring some of that onto chips they have with colleagues and also patients. And so I feel like I want to think of myself as like, I'm a healer with improving or lessening wounds. Yeah. On the flip side of that, I think that I'm kind of contradicting myself because at the same time, I don't know why someone would go into this field if it's not something that they had personally experienced because it's a lot to open yourself up to people who are ill. And so if someone hadn't been affected by this in their own lives, I think it would be harder to come into the field because I think there's a certain level of authenticity mm-hmm. that people can bring when they've kind of been a victim or, or experienced some of these things themselves. But it's a fine line, right? Because yes. maybe people have experienced it, but haven't done enough work on themselves where they really bring their baggage into their profession. Yeah. I always say that I'm walking this fine line where on one hand, I want you to know that I have been super fucked up. So I get the fucked up But at the same time, I'm healthy enough that I can actually walk you through it. And it is a really fine line. Yes. You know, and sometimes when I'm experiencing my own depression or whatever it is, there is a little bit of that imposter syndrome, right? Because you hear yourself For me, it comes out the most when I'm telling other people about self-care and I'm asking my patients like, so Mm. what are you doing for yourself? And they're like, nothing. And I'm like, well, we need to change that. If someone were to say to me, like, (laughs) what are you doing for yourself? It would be like, oh, I pet my cat sometimes, but like, have I worked out? (laughs) Am I focusing on my diet? Am I sleeping well? None of those things. And so sometimes it feels a little, I don't know, you know, I can definitely get some of the imposter syndrome sometimes. I'm curious because when I am not taking care of myself in that way, I feel like there's a part of me that wants to act out. It's like a very covert way of self-harming, I think. That's for me. Tell me more about that. Great question. Like eating. Eating is the thing that causes me the most pain, I think, at the end of the day, because... I know what I'm supposed to eat, right? Like I know the things that make my body feel good, that nourish me, that, you know, help keep me fueled. But then I go and order a pizza and then I feel like shit about myself because I ordered a pizza and then also my body feels like shit because that's a fuckload of cheese. Right. When I'm really looking at it, honestly, there's a part of me that is doing it on purpose to sort of sabotage myself. Hmm. Wow. I... (laughs) Wow, you're crazy. (laughs) I think I certainly have issues with food. Wow is basically like, wow, you've identified this and like, what are the ways that I kind of do this? Mm -hmm. I don't know that I would say I intentionally sabotage myself, but food is also not just because of my history, but also because I've got a lot of digestive and bowel issues. Mm -hmm. And if I don't eat 
precisely in the way that I'm supposed to, I will be in for kind of a world of hurt. And I think one of those triggers for me is sugar. And I, you know, am the the child of addicts. What do I love? Sugar. Mm -hmm. And even yesterday is an example. I'm gluten-free. And so I went to this gluten-free bakery and I spent $30 at a bakery because I was so Mm. excited. And of course I'm like, I'll freeze everything. And then I took a bite of every single thing I got (laughs) and then froze it. Well, you had to try it. I did. But at the same time, like today I don't feel well. And what have I done? I've still eaten sugar. And I think it's a sabotage in the sense of I have that thing that people feel like when they're dieting where they eat one cookie and they're like, well, I've messed up this diet. I should eat the whole roll. And instead of me bouncing back and being like, "Okay, today's a new day, I can heal my digestive tract today. It's like, Mm -hmm. well, I already fucked it up. So like, who knows if I'll even feel better. And it's just certainly not a positive thing. Right. If I could figure out my food issues, then I would feel like I was totally healed. And like, because everything else would pale in comparison to that. (laughs) Wow. I, that's another journey, right? I mean, yeah, as much as I'm recovered from an eating disorder, it doesn't mean that like, I don't remember how many calories every single thing Uh, I eat has, you know? Wow. Oh, food. I wanted to talk about when I saw you on the moth. Oh, yeah. Can we talk about that? Because the story that you told, if you want to share it again. I'd love to have the listeners hear some of it, but basically the end, it's a very morose punchline. And I think I was one of like five people in the audience that was cackling, like laughing so hard (laughs) because hashtag dead dad. So I like, I'm totally in the camp with you. And it saddened me that people felt uncomfortable laughing. So can you tell a little bit of the story? Yeah, sure. So I also thought it was extremely funny. And I noticed that when I was, when I, after I said the punchline, which I'll talk about in just a minute, (laughs) there was like a few spread laughter, but I think then other people realized it was okay to laugh. Right. And so there was like this really delayed laughter, but I was so happy when I heard it because like, like I said, I thought it was hilarious. The story I told was basically about my father who was a drug addict and a narcissist and really neglectful parent and cheated on my mom and ended up in jail and had his like limbs amputated because of diabetes. And throughout all of this, whenever anybody would confront him being worried, his line would be die young and leave a good looking corpse, which is like so flippant. And like, you know, when you're a little kid and you've just learned how bad smoking is and you see your dad chain smoking, you know, you go up to him, tell him you're worried. And the first thing he says is like, die young, leave a good looking corpse. Mm-hmm. And so when he did die, he had his left leg amputated. He'd lost all his teeth. He was emaciated. And so the line was, I'm pretty sure he didn't leave a very good looking corpse. <laughs> Which still is fucking hilarious. Hilarious. <laughs> yes. I thought so. And you're right. I definitely wish people would have felt like freer to laugh at this ridiculous, ridiculous thing I was saying. Mm-hmm. So one assumes a certain level of closeness with parents, right? Like we assume that you're supposed to have a good relationship with your parents. We assume that you're supposed to be sad when somebody dies. And what I think people seem to struggle with, especially with death of parents, is they project how they would feel if their parent died and they were the person in that position instead of recognizing like you did not have a good relationship with your dad. And so, of course, that's fucking hilarious because justice was served. Right. I had an old coworker of mine commit suicide not too long ago, too. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, thank you. But 
I don't feel sorry for me. Right. I felt sorry for her. And it's this thing where we are so bad at empathy when it comes to grief because we don't talk about it enough. And also, I don't think that we talk about dysfunctional family relationships enough Mm -hmm. in a way to give space for people to recognize that. You know what I mean? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And, you know, something I absolutely agree. I mean, I think a lot of the patients that I see come from conservative households that say things like don't air your dirty laundry. Mm -hmm. Don't tell anyone about this. Just kind of persistent secrecy around mental health and substance abuse and family relationships, which is complete bullshit. And like, you know, one of the things I talked about on the Huffington Post interview I did about mental health was like, we can't afford to keep suicide a secret anymore. God, right. There are families who've had people kill themselves. And when someone said, how did he die? The person will say, oh, they were sick. They won't go into it because mm. they're ashamed. And again, that's hurting everyone in the family, keeping up that lie. But also, you know, so at the moth, I received two really good scores. And then there was an older couple. Ultimately, I think they were a little more conservative and they gave me a not so great score. <gasps> boo. And I was happy that people in the audience booed when oh, I got that. That's right. I did boo. Which made me feel really, really good. But I think that it's exactly what you're talking about. There's this sense of like, what's wrong with you that you didn't love your dad, that you're making mm-hmm. fun of his death. This is kind of uncomfortable. I don't like it. Whereas for me, I didn't have respect for my dad. I never thought I should have respect for my dad. He was a bad person and a bad father Mm. and a bad husband. And and he died in a sad and tragic way, which I don't feel bad about either, I guess. And I think you're exactly right. There's this projection of like, you should have been sad. You should have Mm -hmm. been mourning and in pain. And then I wasn't. And so I think people think that that reflects on me rather than my father, which I don't agree with. Right. And that's so fucked up because he's the one who failed in the position that he put himself in. Right. He decided to be a father. You didn't decide to be the child, but it's your fault that you didn't grieve his death. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think that that's more traditional. Right. I recently saw Gabor Mate speak and, you know, he talks about addiction being born out of childhood trauma and this weekend I guess, seminar workshop thing that we did. Basically, he's like, I can find your childhood trauma in three minutes or less, which was not necessarily the safest way to be teaching us all these things. But that's something that I try to help my clients understand is that everybody has some sort of childhood trauma. For you, it was obvious, right? Like narcissistic, drug addicted, mentally ill parents. And for some people, it's a little bit more subtle, but it's still there. And it's not because all parents are bad people, but it's because all parents are human and there has to be room for people who come from more quote unquote traditional families where they feel love for their parents. There needs to be space for the parents to have fucked up as well simultaneously with feeling love for them. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, I will never forget that joke. That was super funny and (laughs) also made me think of my dad as well because he was definitely on the narcissistic spectrum. So they would have been buds. Oh, yeah. I mean, as much as two narcissistic people can like engage, right? Yeah. Well, my dad had this friend, Big John, and Uh we always used to joke that he was his non-sexual life partner because as they aged, they clearly earlier in life when they were good looking, they were definitely like ladies men. And as they aged, they kept trying to be ladies. Oh, man. Isn't that sad? There's nothing worse than a failing narcissist. Oh, (laughs) oh, you're so right. And that's what this was like. They had this 
cute little narcissistic, we take care of each other like situation. But yeah, they were both failing narcissists. Wow. Hope Big John's not listening. Sorry, buddy. (laughs) I kind of hope he is. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think that age group knows how to listen to podcasts very often. So I think we'll be okay. Yeah. Do you have a history of suicide in your family? Attempts. I do. Yeah. Mm, Okay. Yeah. Because I have had people actively succeed at suicide in my family. And I think it's an interesting like one probably wouldn't necessarily say suicide runs in the family because it's not like, you know, diabetes or something like that. But it does, doesn't it? Because if you're passing like mental illness from one parent to child to parent to child, then it does run in the family. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, isn't that one of the biggest risk factors for a suicide attempt is that someone had a completed attempt in the family? That makes sense. Yeah. But I didn't realize that was. Same as like history of past attempts. If you've had a completed suicide by a member of your family, you are at higher risk just for a variety of reasons. I mean, the trauma of that obviously ripples through the family. That level of clinical depression is certainly genetic. So for a variety of reasons, but yeah, I don't know that it's ever handled in a way, you know, which is another yeah. thing that I'm a big advocate for is that even if you are morally or religiously against suicide or you've no idea what it would be like to be suicidal, it doesn't mean you can't be a good support person. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you can't tell someone that maybe you don't relate, but that you're going to sit with them and you're going to be there and you're going to do whatever might make them feel better in this moment and then get them the help that they need. And so I think it's exactly like first aid, but it's mental health first aid. Yeah. And that is a thing. Mental health first aid is its own thing. Maybe that needs to be in schools or something like that. Mental health first aid, because especially as the younger generation is coming up and we are more depressed, anxious, addicted, obese than ever in human history. Yeah. (laughs) bummer town (laughs) way to bring it down Sarah but I guess I'm curious what do you think obviously we talked a little bit about stigma and we need to be able to talk more about suicide and mental health and all those things but is there anything else that you think really needs to shift either you know personally within our profession culturally that's gonna really help support more people not successfully complete suicide Absolutely. There's stigma about mental health, you know, and mental health medications, but then there's like something else that exists in conservative communities, especially conservative communities that have a lot of superstitions. Mm. A lot of my Latino teenagers, their parents were so fearful that when I did prescribe these kids who were really suffering, a lot of them marginalized, a lot of them LGBTQ, Mm -hmm. their parents would go through their rooms and throw out these meds that were helping them. And the questions I get asked are, just show me how uneducated people are. You know, will it change my personality? And will it change who I am? And, you know, will the side effects be with me forever? And does this mean I'm crazy? And what if it makes me go crazy? And so many different things that most psych meds don't even really have in their capabilities to do. And the example I always give to people who are so worried about stigma is the brain is an organ like any other organ, like the heart, like the lungs like the pancreas. And, you know, if the pancreas doesn't do what it's supposed to, it doesn't produce insulin, Mm -hmm. it's diabetes. And we prescribe people insulin and you'll never hear someone saying, oh man, he really needs to man up and just not take that insulin. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Or like that diabetes is all in his head. (laughs) 
And it's ridiculous, right? And hilarious. I'm going to start telling people that. That diabetes, <laughs> you you don't have a heart condition. That's all in your head. But it's as ridiculous as telling someone that their mental health issues are all in their head because right. A, it's not true. Neurotransmitters exist in every part of the body. Mm-hmm. And B, it, it is a serious health condition that has genetic implications. And I think there's a certain level of culpability, right? By saying it's all in your head. You're making it up. You're not trying hard enough. You're lying. It's your fault. Whereas we don't do that with medication for high blood pressure or medication for diabetes or heart disease. And so I hope that the shift is that we just start looking at the brain as an organ that can get dysregulated. And it someday going to the doctor for a checkup is the same as going to a doctor to get your antidepressants refilled. Yeah, let's hope. The feasibility of that is unlikely to happen soon, but... Maybe when we're old and gray, we (laughs) will have noticed this big shift. Right. If we were to have children, which we're not going to. But if (laughs) if uh, people who would be like our grandchildren's age, that may be the time when it changes. Who knows? I certainly hope so. Well, Rachel, we're coming up on the end of the hour. So I just wanted to ask before we leave, is there anything that we didn't talk about today that you'd love to share with listeners? I don't think so. I think this was pretty thorough. So thanks again for having me. I think your questions were great and definitely a great conversation as always. Yeah. And I love that you're so honest about your own history. And it's not easy to do that in our profession, like we said earlier with walking that line. But I think it's so important. Yes, I definitely agree with that. For us to be accountable to Mm -hmm. to others and to ourselves. But also for people who are listening who may not necessarily know how they're going to accept a new mental health diagnosis or what it means to them, basically just having people they can look up to and saying, you know, you and I, we have multiple college degrees and we both Mm -hmm. you know, have our own private practices and have all this experience and are for the most part pretty high functioning people. And yet both of us have Mm -hmm. a mental illness and a history of trauma. And here we are kind of living really good lives. Right. And it's possible. Exactly. Thank you so much. Of course. Awesome. Well, you have a great rest of your day. Okay, you too. Thanks so much to my guest, Rachel Inberg. And thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and Edwin Ruiz at the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, as well as Liam O'Donnell for the album art and Ben Mueller for our theme music. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. We'd love to be spread around a little bit more. And for more information on Rachel, you can visit my website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. You can find Conversations with a Wounded Healer on Facebook and Twitter. And don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play or Stitcher. Thanks as always for tuning in. Until next time. Bye-bye.